Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28. Uh, About eight days after uh, Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John uh, with him and went up onto the holy mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And then two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was yet to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and when they had become fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Uh, and, And as they were leaving... Jesus, uh, Peter, said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, And then a parenthetical statement. He didn't know what he was saying. (laughs) Uh, Then verse 34. I love it like when the Bible just kind of throws these little things at you. Uh, Verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice from the cloud There was a voice from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And the disciples kept this to themselves (laughs) and didn't tell anyone what had happened to them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, You know, sometimes when you read a Bible passage or a story in the scriptures, the best thing to do uh, is to try to find a parallel to your own life. Uh, So you might say, you know, when this happened, uh, it was kind of like when I go through this or when I went through that, and you find these parallels uh, to your life. There are, however, some passages of Scripture, some stories in the Scripture where this approach is simply a dead-end road. Uh, This is one of those stories. (laughs) Uh, I'd be willing to bet that few, if any of you, have ever had an experience that would be in any way analogous to what the disciples experience here. Uh, where the face of Christ changes in appearance, it begins shining, his, his uh, clothes appear as bright as lightning, and you're thinking, huh, is there something in my life that is sort of like that? And the best you might be able to come up with is, I got a sunburn once, right? Uh, so I, I encourage you maybe not to go down the sort of parallel analogous road with this passage. Uh, so the best case in those, uh, in those scenarios, the best case is to Uh, simply begin to understand the story as it is. And so that's what I want to do this morning, is try to enter into the story, not as a way of finding parallels to our own lives, like, oh, this is kind of like that, but rather to understand simply the story as it exists in the Scriptures. Um, And there are actually three main figures, three main characters in the story, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, the disciples are there too, but they are there in the story primarily as witnesses to what is happening between these three. Uh, Peter has a little line in there that is quickly discounted with, he doesn't know what he's saying. (laughs) Uh, And so the three main characters are Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And what we need to understand as we approach kind of this story is we need to begin to recognize that sometimes there are single personalities. Uh, There are people that begin to represent uh, something that is much larger than themselves, uh, that they themselves become larger than life and and point to something bigger than just their own particular life. Uh, To give you maybe some modern examples, uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs 
the smallest that Steve Jobs can be is to represent a single brand, right? When you hear Steve Jobs, you don't think father, husband, uh, someone's brother. No, what you think about is the brand of Apple. The Steve Jobs himself, the person, has become this thing that is larger than life. Uh, and the smallest he can be is to represent the single brand of Apple, but more broadly speaking, he represents the, the uh, technology and design. And his, his name, his face, call to mind something that is much larger than himself. In fact, he's come to kind of represent an entire industry. Uh, another example might be William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare doesn't just represent his own plays or the plays that he wrote, but rather William Shakespeare represents literature, quite literally, right? Uh, or Martin Luther would be another example. Martin Luther can't just represent his own teachings, but he represents and stands in and becomes the embodiment of the Reformation. Are you with me? So sometimes there are single personalities that begin to take on a larger-than-life uh, kind of aura, and then they point us to something larger than themselves. Now imagine if Shakespeare, Jobs, and Luther were suddenly gathered together and shining on a mountain. <laughs> uh, we might begin to think that this some, is something is significant happening that is telling us or helping us to understand the relationship between science, the arts, and faith. Now, I promise I'm not trying to be sacrilegious this morning. I'm just trying to give you an idea of what is happening in our passage. That these three main characters, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, each represent something. Which is to say, when we think of Moses, uh, what do you think about? Uh, for most people, we think about two main things, the Exodus and the law. Uh, after all, Moses, as we read the Old Testament, is the one who went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh and demanded that his people be let go and released from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And with God's help, that is, in fact, what happened. And we call this event the Exodus. And you can read about it in the biblical book called Exodus. <laughs> Pretty cool how that works. Now, he's also the one uh, who mediates the old covenant between God and the people of Israel. Uh, he's the one that comes down, in, in the, comes down from the mountain with the stone tablets that represent the law, and that time it was his face that was shining. Uh, and and he, so he presents the law to the people, and in very real sense becomes sort of the embodiment of the law, the representation of the law. And Charleston Heston did a pretty good job many, many years later, right? And so the, the, this covenant is live by these laws and it will go well for you. Live by these laws and you will be a light to the nations. You will demonstrate to the world what it means to live under the rule and the reign of God. And so Moses, for us, I, in kind of understanding and unpacking this passage of Scripture, really means or represents to us the law. Now, as we, from our vantage point, we kind of get a whole bunch of the story, right? We have the scriptures written down, recorded, and we can read them and, and have a vantage point that they didn't have. And from our vantage point, we know that the people of Israel did a pretty poor job of following the law. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, it's kind of like just the story of Israel's failure, right? <laughs> it's kind of like this, oh man, if we were in their position, we would do so much better, <laughs> Uh, but they didn't do a very good job. In fact, what we learn is that they couldn't do it. And so the law itself became sort of this, well, it felt like a burden to carry. It might have even felt like chains around their feet enslaving them. It was a standard of impossibility. 
And so in light of this standard of impossibility, this law that has been given that seems impossible to follow, this covenant that is almost become a burden, God begins to raise up prophets. And the prophets are there in order to speak a timely word from God for the people of God. And what the prophets begin to do is they begin to call the nation of Israel back to the covenant responsibility of following the laws of God. And so when when Israel has kind of gone on the wayside, maybe they've even given up, oh, the law is impossible, we'll never be able to do it. God raises up a prophet to say, (laughs) right? Let's come on back and let's begin to re-energize ourselves for obedience to this law. But the prophets come with another uniquely particular message of hope, and that is that God will raise up a Messiah who will bring ultimate freedom, right? That it's like, it's, it's almost as if the prophets are, have, a, have a, a two-faced job. On one hand, they want to call them back to the law, call them back to obedience, and in the very same way, and sometimes in the very same breath, they want to say, and yet there is the greater hope of a Messiah who will come and ultimately free us. And in fact, a world is coming where this Messiah will reign and rule. And so the prophet's words are, sort of, are both sort of like, you should do this, and also there is a hope available to you. And one of the chief among one of those prophets, one of the key prophets, was a guy named Elijah. And so Elijah's message actually centered on, he was, he was kind of a hardcore prophet. He's the guy who his, his whole life and message centered on calling the people of Israel back to following God's laws. He was unrelenting in his call to, to, for Israel to return to their covenant responsibilities. And Elijah lived like this crazy life. Uh, Elijah, uh, he's the prophet who um, challenged 850 prophets of the gods of, uh, named Asherah and Baal or Baal. So it's just him, right? And he challenges 850 people to a prophetic fight. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. There was a big drought, and this is on Mar- Mount Carmel, Uh, And so, do you remember the story? In the middle of a terrible drought, Elijah challenges these prophets to call on their gods to send rain. And so when, when, they're, when, the, when those prophets are doing all of their kind of crazy stuff and the rain isn't coming, Elijah starts to literally trash talk those prophets. It's a crazy story. He says stuff like, oh, are your gods asleep? You know, or maybe they're just busy. They're not paying attention. You know, this is like, this is like prophetic trash talk, by the way. Like, your God is asleep. Yeah, let's take that, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> and so, then, so then what he does, he like kind of marches up to the altar with all this confidence. And, and he prays to Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel, and it begins to rain like crazy. It's a, it's a phenomenal, crazy story. And so uh, Elijah has kind of represents for us in this story of the transfiguration, uh, the prophets. So we have Moses who kind of stands in the place or as the embodiment of the law. Uh, we have uh, Elijah who stands in the place of or as the embodiment of the prophets. And then you have Jesus uh, who 
is start, people are starting to kind of gain, there's, there's kind of some traction gaining about this guy might be, in fact, this Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah. But Jesus is also quite literally a prophet. He's going around teaching and he's giving a timely word from God for the people of God. He, he's really, in many ways, fulfilling this kind of prophetic voice or this prophetic office. And he's also this, he's this unique Israelite, this unique Jewish person who obeys the law in its entirety, right? So already, Jesus is this really unique character. And in some way, we are to understand that from this passage, the disciples are witnessing the working out of the relationship between the law and the prophets and Jesus. Are you with me so far? Now, there's a key to this passage that is found in verse 31. In verse 31, it says, they spoke about his departure, uh, which he was to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, let's address the obvious. Uh, who talks like that? <laughs> uh, who talks about departure being brought to fulfillment? Uh, in fact, when was the last time, let's say you were going on a vacation, and before you left, a friend said, hey, like, uh, when are you guys leaving? And you responded, our departure will come to fulfillment on Friday. Right? Departures don't exactly come to fulfillment. So already something isn't quite jiving here. The language itself is pointing us that there's something else going on. There's something behind the veil. Well, we learn it uh, when we actually look at the Greek instead of the English. Uh, the Greek word that we translate as departure is the word, and this is going to blow your mind, uh, the word is exodus. <laughs> what? What? Okay, so the word exodus does in fact mean departure. It's a fair translation, right? Uh, it means departure or going away. And this should immediately like uh, send off all sorts of, 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 ring all sorts of bells for us, right? Moses is the guy who led the people of Israel out of Egypt as in a gigantic departure, as in we are getting out of here, right? But, but listen, the word... The word exodus can also be a euphemism for death, as in, when I am no longer here. So check it out. The Old Testament exodus was when a nation of enslaved people were freed and brought into a land of their own called the Promised Land. And for Israel, this is in fact like... This is so central to their understanding of who they are as a collective people and as a nation. In fact, if you were to ask them, who are you? Who are you? Right? Then, then the Israelites would have said, they would have said, we are the people that have been freed from slavery in Egypt. And then if you were to ask them, okay, well then who is God? They would have immediately said, God is the one who brought us out of Egypt. And so the, the Exodus is quite literally this central way of understanding themselves, that we used to be enslaved, and now we are free. We used to be without land, now we are people with land, okay? That's the Old Testament exodus, but check this out. The exodus of Christ is where, through his death, humanity is freed from slavery to sin and death and brought into new creation. <laughs> Yeah, 
right? Amazing. I can tell you're not as excited as me, and I, that's okay. That's okay. What I want you to hear today, uh, at the very basic level, is that the gospel is another kind of exodus. It's a narrative of freedom from slavery with an inheritance of land. But now, instead of a particular people being brought from, out of slavery into a particular land, under the lordship of Christ and the work of the Messiah, anyone who calls on him by faith is brought out of slavery to sin and death and inherits new creation. Oh, that is good gospel preaching, folks. That is amazing stuff. It's this, like, about his exodus, which is yet to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. It's so good. It's so good. Now, the text says, and here's what we have, but, but we haven't yet got to, we could, we could kind of live there a while, but the text is really about the relationship between Moses, Jesus, and Elijah, the, the law, the prophets, and the Messiah. Um, and, and so verse 31 says that they were talking about this, right? Uh, the, Jesus is shining, and then here's these two other characters, and they're having a conversation. Um, and, and they're talking about the exodus of Christ that is yet to be accomplished. And I can imagine Moses saying, sure, Jesus, you have your exodus, but I have one too, right? Maybe I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but, uh, but this, is, this is how I imagine it. Moses is kind of like, yeah, all right, but I have an exodus too, right? And, and the temptation is for us to actually kind of hold all things equal and say, you have your thing, and that was good, and I have my thing, and that's good. And this is actually what Peter precisely does. This is Peter's part in the story. What, what Peter does is when he sees what is happening, he says, let's build three dwellings and, and you can all stay here and we can all hang out. Uh, and, and so we can just like hold the law and the prophets and Jesus uh, together and just kind of appreciate them in their own kind of way. Uh, but then the parenthetical statement, but he didn't know what he was talking about, right? He didn't know what he was talking about. And then we get the rest of the story. And the next thing in the story is a cloud comes covers them. Uh, a voice from the cloud says, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. And when the cloud clears, it's just Jesus all alone. See, one temptation is to try to, when thinking about the relationship between the law and the prophets and Jesus, is to try to hold them all sort of in equal tension with one another. You have your thing, I have my thing, it's all kind of good. Uh, but the other temptation, in light of the end of, end of the story, might be to just throw away the law and the prophets completely, to which I would say this is also not right either. You see, what this text is inviting us to do is to recognize the continuity between the law and the prophets and Jesus. What this text is helping us to understand is that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and is therefore the proper interpreter of those things that are preserved in Scripture. So it'd be one error to say, oh, this, this, just kind of hold everything in one gigantic embrace. It'd be another error to say, let's just throw them out completely. In other words, we can't throw out the law and the prophets, but neither can we give equal weight to them with Jesus. Jesus is the interpreter of the law and the prophets, and we see all that we read in those in light of him. 
Uh, so all of the laws are given to Israel and then they are obeyed by Christ. Uh, many scholars have said Jesus is the true Israelite. That the vocation that was given to Israel right, to follow these laws, to bear the light to the nations. This is what it looks like to live under the rule of God, but then they didn't do so well. That, that vocation of Israel, vocation's responsibility, their job was, was not done so well by all of them, but was done perfectly well by Jesus himself, making Jesus himself the true Israelite. You with me? And so Christ himself, though, having become the true Israelite, having fulfilled the vocation of the nation of Israel, says, I am now giving you a new law, and I'm summarizing it in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so he summarizes all of the law in that statement of love of God unrelenting love, love with heart, soul, mind, strength, and also love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just kind of leave us hanging. Okay, love the Lord, love God and love neighbor. But then he begins to flesh that out in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And what he does <laughs> is as the true Israelite, Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, takes the burden of the Old Testament law with all of its this and that and heavy burdens and he begins to, and he begins to say, no, 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 there is a... He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now live in these ways and these ways are the ways that give you life. So, so here's what I want you to think about. When, when you're reading the Old Testament laws and you're thinking, this is a terrible burden to carry, or you have questions, does this apply to me? Am I supposed to follow this or am I not? And you just kind of have like all these questions swirling around in your mind as you read the Old Testament law. Just remember that there is one, in fact, who has carried the burden for you and who now invites you to follow him whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. The, whose law is to love God and to allow that love for God to overflow in love for neighbor just as you love yourself. And listen, I think love for God, we can get a handle on that. Love for neighbor, we could probably do a little better job, but we're doing okay. But, but here's, here's one part that we often miss in that whole equation. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Now, if you have a personality mix that's, that's anything like mine, or if, you have any, any, if you're any, in any way like me, that's the hardest part. <laughs> right? But there is this sense in which love for God gives us the opportunity and the ability to begin to see what God thinks about me. That as I direct my love for God, yes, it's also meant to go horizontal into love for neighbor, but it's also just supposed to keep going down and root itself in my heart so that I begin to see that there is beauty and there is grace in who I am and who God has designed me to be. And I, and I think that self-hatred is such an issue in our culture, right? <laughs> and so there's this, there's this beautiful message to the Christian story that this that the law summarized by God includes a love for who I am and who God has designed me to be. 
So I don't know where you're at today, but I want you to leave today in the confidence that God loves you, and you should too. That's why when I prayed for Xander, and one of the things I've learned to pray for my own kids is not that they would, yes, that they would come to know and love God and that they would be so certain and assured of their parents' love for them, but I've often begun to pray that they would learn to love themselves. They would love who God has designed them to be. (laughs) So Jesus fulfills all the law as the true Israelite, and then gives us a new law whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And then the prophets. The prophets spoke about a Messiah that was to come and the world that would come with him. And they have these images of like uh, a wolf laying down with a lamb. Or there's, the prophet Isaiah even says, kids will play around snake pits and not be bit. And you're like, what? <laughs> okay, but even in God's new creation, I'm not that interested in the snake pits, right? Like, it's the serpent that started this whole thing, you know? So, but, but like, so, so the prophet Isaiah just like has these radical visions, you know? Swords into plowshares, instruments of death being brought and turned into instruments of life and like all these kind of beautiful things of the world that is to come with the Messiah. But then as the true prophet of God, Jesus is, in fact, becomes that Messiah, is that Messiah, and he established his kingdom here on earth and teaches us to pray that his will would be done and that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And so now that the image of the, now, so now we can imagine with the prophets about the world as it one day will be, right? Uh, I, I've, I've gone at least two weeks, maybe less, without referencing N.T. Wright. So it's time. And, the, and N.T. Wright says that the church is to be people of the future, a future-oriented people where we take the future that God has planned and we pull it into the present with the help of the Spirit of God, that we are to be, that we are to be living in the ways of God's future to come, Right? And so Jesus is in fact that Messiah. He establishes kingdom of God. And so now with the reign of God having arrived in Jesus, we can imagine with the prophets of the world that it, as it one day will be, right? And last summer we did a series called The Prophetic Imagination and that's what this whole thing is about. Do we have a prophetic imagination, a sanctified imagination to begin to see the world through the lens as it could be or through the lens as God would have it to be? And then we're called to like get to work (laughs) and participate with God to bring that world about. Well, I've been pretty excited and animated So let me today close by uh, maybe taking some liberties on what they were talking about in verse 31. When Moses looks at Jesus and says, you have your exodus, but I have mine too. (laughs) I imagine Jesus getting like this little twinkle in his eye, uh, looking at Moses and saying, listen, your exodus was great. But it was a mere signpost to the real exodus. (laughs) You with me? And then I think that Jesus turns to Elijah and says, your message of the Messiah and the world to come is found in me and the world I've brought. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? It's like Jesus' announcement is, I am the world's long-awaited Messiah, and I'm bringing my kingdom with me. <laughs> it's this beautiful thing. And so, what Transfiguration Sunday, <laughs> this kind of weird story, this weird Sunday in the Christian calendar teaches us and shows us is the relationship of Jesus between the law and the prophets. And it isn't, let's hold them all in equal weight. You have your thing, I have my thing. But nor is it, oh, let's throw those out. We don't need those anymore. We have Jesus. But rather it's understanding how Jesus himself fulfills, lives into these true vocations and offers to us great hope of freedom from slavery to sin and death and the inheritance of new creation. Amen? That's good news. That's better news than spring is on the way. <laughs> That's the best news the world has heard. So I invite us to come to the table today with hearts of gratitude. Um, you know, the, the word Eucharist, which is another word for communion, the word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. And so we come to the Lord's table today not only to embody and to symbolize the unity among us as the body of Christ, that whatever might divide us, social, economic, racial, etc. lines, that in here and at the, ta at the Lord's table we are united under the banner of Christ. So we embody that unity today, but we also come in thanksgiving for all that God has done through Christ, that he has made freedom from slavery and sin possible by way of faith. Amen? Amen. Let me lead us and then I'll uh, give us some instructions for communion today.